the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz. And for one night every single Monday or on the podcast, I spend an hour with you looking at some of the things that are happening in the world, especially what is behind them when it comes to the science, um, behind major news stories and just things that people are fascinated by. And today's story, you may have seen it um, on the internet, you might have seen this video on Facebook or Twitter of a child from fourth grade, who is so amazing at mathematics. I promise you when I was at matric, I probably couldn't calculate numbers as quickly as a Bachle can in the fourth grade. Um, it's quite amazing. And I think all of us uh, at one point felt like... Mm, Math might actually be really useful. So uh, that's what we're focusing on today around being just especially talented. Some people would even say genius. But in case you haven't seen the clips, our uh, producer, Bridget LePere, actually went to Zbachas' neighborhood to interview him and his mom, spent a little bit of time with them. And here's a clip of her asking him just to show off his talent a little bit. Just do a few mental calculations for us here at the Science Inside. Zbachas, I'm a calculations engine. So what's one million times one million? One billion. Oh, okay. Well, that is easy enough. So what is one million times 535,000? 535,000 million. Wow. And what is 500,000 times 6,720? 3,000 million and 360 million. Okay, I don't have my calculator out, but I'm sure I'll work them out. Man, yeah. Ma, do you have one calculation for him? Who's mm. it in? 100,000 more times. 85,000 times 89. 7,000, 7,565,000. I mean, I've got to say, what a child. Wow. I, I, it would take me a while to get that in on the calculator, let alone in my brain that quickly. It's very, it's just so amazing to hear him. And we're going to hear a lot more of Zbachle later in the show because uh, our producer did spend a little bit of time with him and his mom to really just look at what is it like for somebody who at such a young age is so great with the numbers. And you know what that word, math whiz or genius or, um, you know, uh, gifted children, these words get thrown around so easily saying, oh, wow, uh, that's incredible. You know, you're a genius. But what is really behind that scientific idea? Why are some people so much more talented than others? Is it genetic? Is it just how they were taught? Or is it just pure talent. We went to some scientists to find out and that's what's going to be in our main story later on the show today. We've also got, as I said, and his mom, more of them. 
then if you are a regular on the show, you know that we like to take a little bit of a break in the middle with our feature called Unscience. That is when we look at something strange and just wonderful from the world of science and research, something that you can really remember and take to your next dinner party. And today it is about fainting goats. You may have seen the videos on the internet, goats that just faint as they try to run away. It's pretty funny, but there is science behind us, so we're going to look at that. And then later in the show, we continue the topic of gifted children or geniuses by looking at what happens when they become an adult. What does it do to uh, your psyche, to your emotions and your psychology and especially your social life when you are far above the average intellectual level? That's all on the show. And I'd love to hear from you. Have you ever had somebody in your life where you thought, wow, this person isn't just hardworking or smart, especially maybe if you're a student? Do you have somebody in your class where you think, hmm? This kid is a real genius. Or maybe it's even you. Tell us on social media what your experiences are and what do you think of this concept of, of math whiz or genius. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM. Hashtag Science Inside is the hashtag you want to use. And if you've missed the show live, that's not a problem at all because the Science Inside is on iTunes as well as our website, vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. If you want to drop us a WhatsApp, we'd love to hear from you. 0840784912 is that number. But before we jump into the rest of the show, as always, we will start it off with our news. Stay tuned. This week's Science Headline. And today on the show, I get to welcome our producer, Bridget Lepere, with me to chat some science news. How are you doing, Bridget? I'm good, thanks. So what do you have for us today? What's happening? Well, uh, this week's story was sourced from the Life Science in correlation with Nottingham Trent University and Ian Whitaker at the Notting, Nottingham Trent University. So being Martians is a possibility that we... We've been hearing more and more recent about um, and with us killing Earth and all of that. And scientists are now considering Venus too. Okay. Venus, as we know, it is an inferno of uh, toxic air and its atmosphere can literally crush you. Right? That doesn't sound like a good home, Bridget. <laughs> not at all. And Venus may not be ideal, but regardless of this, NASA is currently working on a conceptual manned mission to Venus, named the High Altitude Venus Operational Concept, in short, Havoc. <laughs> havoc. Yeah. You, you want to first send some humans to a planet that will most likely, nay, most definitely kill them, and you decide on a name like Havoc? <laughs> yeah, and as if Venus needed any help keeping us away. So as much as I would like to make jokes about this all night, this whole situation we've got to understand uh, what the mission really really entails okay so firstly nasa does not intend on landing on the surface of venus instead they want to use its atmosphere so it will be like them hovering in the air okay 
That seems a bit strange to me because, you know, we have plenty of air here. Why would you want to go, you know, hover around a planet that really does want to kill you? So when are they planning to do this? What are the dates they're looking at? Because it sounds very ambitious. Yes, I wouldn't encourage you to pack your bags just yet, okay? So, okay, so it's far in the future, clearly. Yes. But... How, if we're saying they're going to float in in Venus's atmosphere, my obvious question is how does that compare to Earth's atmosphere? Because we might as well be floating around here, right? Sure. But you do know that uh, Earth does have something called gravity, right? Just a little bit. But, uh, (laughs) but, Bridget, we have lots of space up there. I'm sure we can make a plan. Sure, yeah. The upper atmosphere of Venus is mostly like Earth. Uh, as loca- uh, the Earth's location in the solar system, surprisingly, between altitudes of 50 to 60 kilometers and the pressure and temperature can be compared to some regions of the Earth lower in the atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure pressure in Venusian atmosphere is 55 kilometer- kilometers, which is about uh, that of the pressure at sea level on the Earth. And scientists say you wouldn't even need a pressure suit there because this pressure is equivalent to what uh, what we would experience any, at any summit of, uh, um, at the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And this temperature ranges between 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. Okay, that actually sounds quite nice. You know, nice temperatures, pressure that we can handle. But what about radiation exposure? Yes, the atmosphere above the altitude is also quite dense. Dense enough to protect astronauts from ionizing radiation from space. And this was one of the factors which slowed the Mars mission down. Okay, we're still waiting to see, or I am still waiting to see how the whole Mars mission works out. I wish we could just, you know, handle one thing at a time. We'll get to Venus. We'll get there. It's okay. But what about the sulfuric acid in the atmosphere of Venus? Yeah, and that too. And um, that would definitely have to be um, resistant to sulfuric acid's corrosive effect. And we've already got that kind of technology down here that assists with with all of that and currently but currently we don't have a lot of um we don't know a lot about venus so nasa wants to use test missions like havoc to further explore its climatic and geological uh, atmosphere okay so you would need quite a strong airship obviously you'd have to develop those things further and it sounds to me as you say that it's more of a scoping out mission than sending off half of canada for yeah now. you shouldn't just go and live there just yet <laughs> all right so from high up in the sky to down down to the center of the very earth our earth to be specific my story comes from research published in the journal science and reported on in science alert news atlas and others so Bridget I do have to ask you um, what do you think is at the center of the earth like right at the center Uh, the heated heart of the earth (laughs) so like lava Yeah, like, I mean, that's what we've always thought it to be, like just a whole lot of lava. So you're 
partly right. There is a thick layer of molten lava, but it's not the inner, inner core of the planet. So since about the 1930s, it's been thought that the inner core of our planet is actually solid and made of a mixture of mostly iron and nickel. So a giant metal ball, basically. Then there's that liquid outer core, which, as you said, is basically lava. And then there's a solid mantle and the crust, which is, of course, where we live. But that very inner core, the metal part, so to say, just that is about 1,200 kilometers across. Can you imagine that? And it's as hot as the surface of the sun at over 5,000 degrees Celsius. That's pretty impressive. If you think that at best humans have dug maybe 12 kilometers down into the earth and there's there's 1,200 kilometers across just the very center. Wow, that is amazing. It's crazy, right? So a lot of this work over the last century has been done by seismologists who studied how the waves from an earthquake bounced off the inner core and they figured, hey, it's bouncing off. It must be pretty solid. But there's just been a breakthrough to confirm some of these ideas and to just color them in a little bit. So geologists from the Australian National University developed a new method for detecting and analyzing soft seismic waves called J-phase waves. And basically, they're looking at how surface earthquake ripples go all the way through the core of the Earth. Wow. So how were they able to pick these ripples up yeah so that's the thing they're incredibly difficult to detect or listen to and many people over the years have tried so these scientists used a global network of seismic uh, detectors to see what happened not during an earthquake but actually a few hours later so they were looking at the period about uh, between three and ten hours after an earthquake not immediately What they did was called the correlation wave field method. So they did this all over the earth for different earthquakes and then they found that it correlated. And you can imagine this almost like an ultrasound of the world, (laughs) to use a metaphor. So what did they find? It's really interesting to find out what is it that they found yeah, it's not it's not a fairy tale wonderland like the movie The Journey to the Center of the the Earth if you've ever watched that. Oh. Unfortunately, no fairies, no lava lamps. <laughs> That's a bit disappointing. <laughs> How sad. Just yeah. lava and iron. So um, as those previous geological models had suggested, the inner core is indeed solid, but it's a little bit more squishy than they would have thought. In fact, it resembles some of the elastic properties in platinum and gold. Wait, did you say squishy? Squishy. Now I'm imagining a kid's toy, like something that a child can (laughs) just be playing, you know, some rubbery thing. Yeah. But uh, I I guess pretty hot. Yes, still very hot. We're talking like 5,000 degrees. So it's squishy, but it's at like a melting Yes, it's li- in liquid form. No, no, it's not liquid. It is solid. So, so it's like a really hot giant ball of iron, but a little bit a squishy. gummy bear kind of <laughs> hot. <laughs> wow. Hey, I didn't. I I didn't do the science. I didn't decide it was squishy. The scientists are saying it's squishy. Okay. So that's what we're going with. <laughs> so I'm sure you're asking yourself though, like what. What what does this bring us, right? Yeah. Because 
we're still at the top of, you know, on the surface of the earth. That's what we care about. But actually, it does help us understand, first of all, how planets are formed. And very importantly, how magnetic fields work, specifically our Earth's magnetic field. Because there would be no life on Earth without it. And I didn't, don't know if you knew this, Bridget, but there is a lot about our geomagnetic field on the Earth that we don't know. For instance, there have been times in the history of the Earth where it's reversed. Hmm. And we have no idea why. So these kind of things do help us understand. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just but stuck on the squishy part yeah I'm just wondering how do they measure the squishiness because this thing is quite hot and like do they have some instruments pushing this liquid or this solid thing about wow it's it's amazing though good to know right yeah it's good to know that was an update on our science news producer Bridget Lepeho will be back with us later in the show but after the break we get into talking about genius if you think you're super smart you'll want to listen stay curious stay informed stay on the science inside Hello, you are listening to me, Alna Schutz, on The Science Inside. And earlier on the show, at the beginning of the show, we heard 10-year-old Bachle Swane do some pretty incredible math calculations that I myself, more than double his age, can definitely not do. He's been called a math whiz. He's been called a genius. But is this kind of intelligence just talent or is it teaching? And is there any genetic basis for it. We decided to go find out. This is a story by our producer, Bridget LePere. Sbachlezwane is from Lehaye, a small bustling township in the south of Johannesburg. Sbachle was roaming the streets of his neighborhood when Constable Roger Pillay from the Lenasia police station discovered Sbachle's penchant for calculating big numbers from the top of his head. Roger was so impressed that he took a video of Sbathe late last year. He posted it on Facebook. Since then, Sbathe has become really popular in his neighborhood and has been receiving much media attention in recent weeks. However, Sbathe's fame also came with a price adding to the fact that he does have some difficulty forging friendships with his peers. And though he struggles with making friends and struggles with social exclusion, he tramps on relentlessly. So how is your girlfriend when you don't spend time lying? He's done not to play with me. Because you come nigga so no more five run, no more two run, no more four run. Na banga nbaga ivy, bang ela na bong ipu ivy mali iwan. When Sbathe is questioned about his mathematical prowess, he simply cannot explain it. He just says that he can. So to explain Sbathe's dumbfounding abilities, I spoke to a psychology professor who specializes in cognitive psychology and neuropsychology at the Wits University, Kay Cockcraft. There's no consensus about a definition about what is intelligence. So a professor with unfortunate surname of Boring 
said that intelligence is what intelligence tests measure. And there's more than a grain of truth, I think, in that. But a lot of other people have then tried to give more detailed definitions of intelligence, and they really range a lot. So some are around being able to learn quickly, picking up new skills quickly and easily, to be able to reason, and then others have looked at intelligence as your ability to adapt to the environment that you are in, and there are even more broader definitions that consider intelligence as your not only your cognitive abilities, but your abilities to relate to people, for instance, your ability to be aware of your own personality and internal processes. So there's a lot of different definitions. I was doing great one up to great two. English is Ash. Yeah, I was fluently in English because I used to buy amazing English. This man, which from one to twenty pages, sometimes one to ten pages, and he would say, "Mama, open page, ban ban." without looking at the book, and then suddenly it was mathematics. Nobody taught him. Mm-mm, I'd be lying, because just for Yenuguti to get used to the books, I used to read them for him. And then eventually, because being a singer, the pages are money. So, so I found, I found, I found, I found, I found, I found. I found these cases are the exceptions that they're outliers they're unusual and that's why we pay attention to them because they're really not the norm if we see one case like this every 10 20 years it's a lot you know on the other hand maybe they don't always get brought to our attention but there are a lot in the psychological literature they kind of document people with exceptional abilities and they are rare that's what makes them exceptional they are rare would be manifest across race groups i don't think there would be any sort of racial bias his mother mbali zwane says she was smart at school but not as smart as learners in her class and surely not as smart as Sibahle because she was quite playful at school she adds that Sibahle's father is not as smart and there isn't anybody in the family lineage she could attribute the intelligence gene to but there's also then the cognitive approach which is more concerned with how do our mental processes work to arrive at an answer. So what are the processes that we use to get to our answer? So they would be, if we go to your case, the Sibakhle Zwane, they would be interested to know like what strategies is he using to work that out. Rather than his answers, they're interested in the strategies and the approaches. And the cognitive approach also then broadened our definitions of intelligence to include interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal, what today we call EQ, emotional intelligence. And there are some theorists in that approach, like Gardner, who believe also that we have multiple intelligence. So you get, for example, a bodily kinesthetic intelligence that you would see in people who are excellent sports people, for instance. They have their own particular type of intelligence or a musical creative intelligence. So they've broadened that definition. That's why I was saying to you at the beginning, it's quite contentious and there's no one clear definition of what constitutes intelligent behavior. Hey, Mina, you're speechless. Yes, it makes me happy, proud. I can't believe it. What's wrong with this kid? But there's nothing wrong. I don't know what's happening with his mind.
maybe as part of understanding what intelligence is, I can talk to you a little bit about the history of how intelligence is actually measured, because I think that was also one of the issues you were interested in. So it's quite a detailed and a long answer. So if you look historically, there are really two schools that have tried to understand intelligence in psychology. One is the psychometric approach, and those guys are really interested in trying to get a quantitative objective measure of intelligence, and they are the people who've developed IQ tests, and there's a a whole detailed history behind that. The social sense that we look at Sparkly and we can see his behavior is not typical of a 10-year-old's behavior or even an adult's behavior with regard to math, that we know that it's exceptional. We can see his functioning way ahead of his peers. And then if we wanted to formalize that, we would look at his functioning on an IQ test and say, is he functioning two standard deviations or more above the level of expectation for his age and his education level? According to current IQ testing methods, intelligence can be broken into four categories. One being internal cognitive abilities, which speak to the working memory, meaning the ability for one to remember and retain information. And through manipulating this part of the brain, it enables one to do things like mathematical calculations to verbalize the information and come up with a solution. Secondly, the processing speed, which speaks to how quickly one is able to process information and come up with a response to a question or a task. Then there's verbal comprehension, using language to reason. And lastly, perceptual and visual spatial reasoning, which speaks to using nonverbal cues of visual spatial skills to come up with a response. So they have developed many tests, of which currently the Wechsler IQ tests are seen as the gold standard for measuring IQ, and they standardize those tests, so they have a standardized procedure for administering and scoring the test, and then they would give them to thousands and thousands of people at every single age and educational level and see what their scores are in order to try and get a norm. So what is the average person at each age and each educational level, what kind of scores do they get? So that's what we often think about when we think about intelligence is that type of intelligence as measured by an intelligence test. Sabathia really loves mathematics, but apart from mathematics, he likes playing the surf boy surfer game on his mother's phone and he says he would like to be a pilot one day. And of course, his newfound hobby, making money. He solicits payments from people in the street for responding correctly to complex mathematical calculations. Have you won in those competitions? I'm winning. And just in case he didn't want anything to do with mathematics, he could find a career in the musical industry. Do you have your favorite music? What music do you like listening to? Nomet, 
And also you raise like a really interesting question about the extent to which our intellectual and cognitive abilities are inherited versus influenced by environment. This is a theme in psychology that goes back for hundreds of years. I recently read a meta review that tried to look at all of the published studies that have tried to identify genetic versus environmental influences. And it seems to boil down to, I think what they said was 49% genetic, 51% your environment. So your genetic inheritance in terms of your actual brain would set the limits, I guess, on what you can and cannot do. If I use the example of Einstein, they did an autopsy on his brain after his death, and they found that there were actually some key differences between his brain and an average brain, in that those parts of the brain responsible for visualization, particularly numerical visualization, were denser and had more connections, and there were more connections between those areas, association areas that linked all sorts of different sensory information. And then they also found there were sort of structural differences in the prefrontal, the very frontmost part of his brain, that was structurally different, seemed to be that he was born with that structurally different brain, and that those parts are uh, involved in working memory. So they enable us to hold information in our memory while manipulating it, exactly what you would be doing when you're doing mental maths. So it seems that on the one hand, he was born just by some happy coincidence with some structural differences in his brain that made numerical abilities easier for him. But then there's always a very close interconnection between what the environment gives you, you know, the, how the environment responds. So also because the numerical abilities come easily, so I'd say for Sibachle, the same thing, he's got a natural aptitude that somehow he was born with that aptitude. But then what happens over time and development is our brain forms these white matter connections, and those are related to experience and exposure. So the more he uses his mathematical ability, because he sees that people are amazed and he gets a lot of positive reinforcement for this and people want to see his skills. So he's constantly exercising that ability and just making it stronger and stronger and stronger. So it would be a combination of the two. So sometimes just by sheer fluke, our brains are organized differently. Some people are born with brains that are organized differently that gives them this kind of skill and then the environmental factors also come in and help to strengthen it. But I would say because he's young that there must be some sort of genetic or biological aspect to the way his brain is set up that has happened who knows why <laughs> you know these questions we can't answer but that have given him this particular skill and I foresee that he's going to become even better at it because over time he's going to be using that skill and probably will go into some profession using his exceptional maths abilities. 
Yeah, and I'm happy to say, Elna, that uh, Spatle has received sponsorship from uh, Curo. So they'll be sponsoring his education from now until uh, his matriculation year. That's if he still sticks with the school until then. And from what I hear, the mom has received some employment from the school. Mm-hmm. And he recently went uh, on a trip um, to Durban. Compliments of Mango, he was flown to Durban so he could see what pilots do all day. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Because as much as there might be genetic uh, basis for this and raw talent, you still have to develop it. Somebody still has to give all kids, but especially kids who um, might need a, a an, an extra sort of challenge. Uh, somebody needs to give them a chance. So that makes me very happy to hear Yes, and um, yeah, and and this was just to add to some parts of his life that seem, you know, um, lacking. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy for him. That's so excellent. It's such a great story to hear. And we will be speaking a little bit more about gifted children later in the show and hearing more from the Zone family. But first, let's take a bit of a break. This is The Science Inside with Elna. This is the science inside and specifically unscience. Now we take a little bit of a break in the middle of the show and we tell you something that is so strange, so wonderful. You will laugh that scientists spend time understanding these kinds of things. Today's unscience was produced by Lebo Madisha and includes music from Incompetech Music. It comes from National Geographic and other sources and we'll be getting into it with our producer, Bridget Lepeha. Let's let's jump into unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Now, I know everyone has that dramatic friend who pretends to faint every time when they think something shocking has happened. Do you, Elna? Yes, I... Maybe not fainting, but we all we all know that. We all know that vibe. Like a pseudo-faint. Yeah. I think you just fainted. Do you remember feeling lightheaded? Yeah, or like I have to, have to go lie down. It's all d- too dramatic. Maybe you've actually even seen some really faint as a result of being startled. But how many people have seen a real goat faint? (laughs) Wait, a a fainting goat, Bridget. Is this like that movie? I don't know if you've seen this. There's a movie called Men Who Stare at Goats, where George Clooney kills goats by looking at them and thinking about them. We had a master sergeant that could stop the heart of a goat. (laughs) That's both creepy and just weird. (laughs) (laughs) Videos of goats fainting all over the internet. They are literally, they literally just keel over in the middle of running or walking. Okay, I have seen these videos and they are hilarious. They are very funny. I mean, shame. I do feel truly sorry for these goats because they look um, they look quite frightened. But, uh, Bridget, what's, what's the science here, apart from just laughing at fainting goats that sort of run and they fall over? What is, what is actually happening? Why are they fainting? It's simply because they are scared. Shame. <laughs> These domestic goats fall under a strain of livestock called myotopic goats, myotonic goats. 
pardon me, from the name myotonic cognitia, which is a genetic condition. This condition basically causes muscles to stiffen as a result of being startled. Other names of the goats include wooden leg goats, Tennessee fainting goats and nervous goats. Okay, you were talking about the muscles stiffening, but they're not actually fainting. Yeah, sure. I think like a dead leg effect kind of thing. Yeah. No, but it's a panic reaction, actually. People just say that they faint because of the action, but the goats still maintain full consciousness. Okay, that makes sense. So you've already mentioned that this is because of a condition called myotonic congenita, but let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. How does it work? All right. So animals generally run or fend for themselves when they get scared. And this is because of a chemical rush in their bodies. Now, these nervous goats, scientists reckon, faint because they have a cell mutation which stops them from getting this muscle-moving chemical. Okay. So one question is, can these goats also be found in South Africa? Can, can we go on a field trip, Bridget, and look at fainting goats? No, unfortunately not. So (laughs) don't go chasing goats out here in this place because the ones we've got here will run. Run for their lives because they know they are for the eating. (laughs) The nervous goats are native to North America and as one of the names suggests, they are commonly found in Tennessee. But other species do get this condition, including mice and can you believe it? Humans too. What? Humans get fainting goat syndrome? So they just, when they start running, they just kill over? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, although it's not as um, a response to fear. Goats are, however, the only animals prone to falling over with this condition. Plus, myotonic goats actually get bred for their condition to be observed, but also because people think they are a great pet. Okay, it is cute, I guess. It is funny on the internet. But I would feel bad for my pet if I kept scaring them and making them fall over every time visitors came. Yeah, like a goat with cold feet. Shame. (laughs) (laughs) That was our unusual and likely unscience. That's something you can share at a dinner party saying, did you know fainting goats actually don't faint? (laughs) You're still on the science side. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna. So today on the Science Inside, we've been talking all about gifted children, the idea of genius, and where particularly exceptional types of intelligence come from. We've been talking a little bit about the genetics and the nature aspect, but what about nurture? Sure, you may have above average intellect, but how does that fit into a society both socially and psychologically? Earlier in the show, you'll remember we heard about the local math whiz, Zbachle Tswane, and here's what his mother, Mbali Zwane, says about how he copes with his skills socially. Most of the time, prefer We are then you'll get bored. Okay, 
ivalo lezigu if you didn't catch that she was saying that even though he does make time for other kids he usually prefers to just play alone so let's talk more about the social aspect of this and to speak to us we have dr shirley cockett on the line she is an educational psychologist who has worked extensively on the subject of gifted children she has written two books um, about this and heads up the center for integrated learning therapy ilt in cape town thank you so much for joining us Hello, Omiya. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So, when it becomes clear that a child or student is gifted, is it really helpful to give them some kind of special treatment to set them apart as a gifted child, specifically in in terms of a different kind of education? Well, you know, it's not an easy question to answer because every child is different. So you might find that some children cope, gifted children we're talking here, so some of them will cope very well in the mainstream um, and others definitely not. You know, some, some children just have the tolerance for frustration that even though they're bored at school and the curriculum is definitely not at the level of their own ability, they feel they can make up for it in other ways. So. Very often those are the social children, the ones who really enjoy their peers, they enjoy sport, and they can get along very well at school. And then when class events are happening, they can just kind of button down and wait for it all to be over. But if you have a different kind of child who is uh, really, really impatient and can't tolerate a slow pace and easy work and lots of repetition, then those are the ones who really do need to um, perhaps be given something different. Mm. So you're saying it's not just that all uh, gifted children necessarily will focus only on um, on the intellectual sides of their lives and therefore necessarily not be too interested in social social activity? No, lots of them are very, very social. Lots of them are are keen on helping and you know making a difference and they're empathic they tend to be very uh, sensitive people so they feel for all the troubles that they observe in the world and they would like to do something about it then they're not necessarily isolated at all but as i say not all of them are like that you know every single gifted child is different Mm. and And yet, if by the time you're five or ten or twelve, you already are very clearly set apart intellectually or by how you consume um, knowledge or information, that that's of course going to influence um, how you are seen socially, how you deal emotionally with your social role, perhaps. Um, having worked with gifted children over many years, what have you observed in terms of the trends of how most individuals um, handle this. Is it a challenge? When you say how individuals handle it, you mean the children? Yes. Okay, yes. Um, it, It is a challenge and a lot does depend on the support and understanding they get from their in the people in their environment. If people around them understand them, show this understanding, can relate to them and 
um, help them through sticky patches, they will adjust and be much happier than those whose giftedness is not recognized. Um, if they, you know, they are put, they're put down almost. Um, and nobody really wants them. You know, it's that tall poppies story. Nobody wants you. You're not allowed to be a tall poppy. You, everybody has to be the same. And if, if they are in that kind of environment, it can be very, very difficult. Hmm. So, yeah, through the years, um, my almost mantra has been that these children need the whole condition of giftedness needs understanding. It's not just that, oh, you might be good at school or you might be above average. Giftedness is not above average. Giftedness is way, way, way above average. <laughs> and um, um, if, if that isn't understood, they can be very lonely people. Mm. And so, yeah, my mantra has been then to understand them. If, if the educators their family even. Sometimes parents need, they need help in understanding their children and the challenges they may face, and the schools as well. Mm. So just to, you know, when you feel understood, you feel immediately better. But when people around you are constantly showing that they don't understand you at all, it, you become lonely, you become resentful, you withdraw, or you just become a mastermind criminal. <laughs> So what I'm hearing you saying is it's not necessarily a thing of, um, you know, whisking all of these people off into a school for gifted children or specifically making them go to university by the time they're 14. Um, it's not that kind of treatment necessarily, but rather whatever environment they're in, creating an understanding for them and a space where they can live out their giftedness without feeling like it's condemned or they have to hold back on it. Yes, it, yes, yes, to a certain degree. But it, there's no doubt that if they can, you know, one of the most important things socially for these people or children is that they meet others who are like-minded. So if you can put them into a program or an extension class or a school where they are totally understood and they meet others who are like them, they feel less like the square peg in the round hole. You know, it, it's not an easy thing to be young and realize that you are different from all the other children. And, um, and that sort of like they look at you strangely. <laughs> You start thinking, what's wrong with me? Yes. So we've been we've been saying gifted children. That is the term, and of course, it it becomes particularly noticeable in children and in in schools. But we had the science inside our place within a university and and within um, a city. So one of my big questions for you is, what happens later in life to these individuals we call gifted children, whether they have the support or not? What does, a, what does a gifted adult look like? Yeah. Well, sometimes they tend to look like everybody else because they just quietly disappear into the woodwork. <laughs> um, others withdraw and can become almost reclusive. Um, you know, I, I remember in all the years of being involved in this field of study, my colleagues all around the world used to often sit down and we used to say, 
where are all the gifted adults? What becomes of them? Why aren't they out there fulfilling these, this amazing potential and doing great things? And we could never understand quite why um, we don't have extraordinary able people kind of leading the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, sometimes I think that I, I might not be 100% right, correct here, but my own personal thing is that if you grow up and people have spent their whole life trying to normalize you and tell you that you must just get on with it and... Um, you, you don't get any real empathy from people around you, you're not going to really grow up wanting to make the world a better place for all of those people. Mm. You might be very happy in doing your own thing and maybe making yourself a very comfortable life, maybe making a lot of money, maybe doing what you want to do. But, you, you know, they, they seem to be a little bit more invisible. What a sad thing because isn't um isn't the ideal that we as a society and uh, you know thrive off of them thriving and and them living to towards their full potential um thank you so much for speaking to us we have been speaking to dr shirley cockett an educational psychologist who works specifically with gifted children and i think there's something that we can all take away as i said from looking at individuals who are far above uh, average as dr cockett said what are we doing with the talents we have, whether they're social or intellectual? I think that's one of the big takeaways for me here. You're still on the science side. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. I've got to say, I've never quite considered myself a genius, even though I'm sure my mother would call me one. But today's show has been so interesting, looking at this subject, this idea of giftedness, of being far above average. And as I said, I think there's something we can all take away from it, um, even if it is just to try to get a little bit better at calculating maths in our heads. A big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today, including including Shirley Cockett, Kate Cockcroft, Mbali Zwane, and of course, Zbakhle Zwane. And today, our team behind the scenes was production by Bridget Lepehe, Lebo Madisha, Gloria Mabuza, and Harmony Malefi. Tech by, uh, by Kutlana Sahame, as always. The podcast is on vets.journalism.coza forward slash science and on iTunes. Find us as Wow FM on social media. My name is Elna Schutz and The Science Inside is produced by the Vets Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We will be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.